you are the brave souls, or we are all collectively the foolish ones, <laughs> however we want to size that up. But I do thank you for making the effort to come out this morning. You can hear the creak of this old wooden roof as it creaks under the sound of that wind. It's ironic and maybe uh, of God that we would have last week said and looked at Matthew chapter 8 and asked ourselves the question of, what do you do in the storms of life? Little did I know that seven days later we would gather and there'd be a storm all around us. And so this morning I want to ask you this, as you turn, take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 18 to 26. I want to look at this idea of what it means to have faith in Jesus. Now that's just an idea, a statement, it's abstract until you apply it to something. So I followed that up with faith in Jesus when you're between a rock and a hard place. How do you have faith in Jesus when life isn't going your way? How do you have faith in Jesus when maybe your faith is in jeopardy? How do you have faith in Jesus when you're struggling, when you're at wit's end, when I will use this word a lot in this sermon, when you're desperate? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about because we live in a world with all kinds of chaos. I I am marveling when I watch Canadian politics and American politics in particular and how vitriol it is with social media and everything else, and there seems to be more chaos, more sides, more splintering, more, more all these things, and yet we long for peace and harmony, and we long for something to make sense. And when we do that, we find these rare individuals in the world, and we elevate them because they portray that they have found peace. And one such character in our lifetime was a guy by the name of Gandhi. He was admired and looked up. He was the image of a tranquil soul who possessed perfect inner harmony. Others today, even living today, might even look at the Dalai Lama or different individuals, yoga instructors and people that are life coaches. And we long to find tranquility. I find it fascinating with Gandhi. I've actually read a lot about him. He's been a fascinating character for me. Fifteen years before he died, this is what he wrote. I must tell you in all humility that Hinduism as I know it entirely satisfies my soul. It fills my whole being and I find a solace in the writings that I miss even in the Sermon on the Mount. Now that's a bold statement. But Ironically, just before he died, he would write this. My days are numbered. I am not likely to live very long, perhaps a year or a little more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in the slew of despond. You see, even the tranquil Gandhi had to face the reality of death. And the inability of his man-made religion to give him answers or to give him comfort in the face of something he had no control over. My question for all of you this morning is, how desperate is desperate? Are you desperate? Wherever you find yourself in the spectrum of life, whether it be relationships or faith in Jesus Christ or health or money or marriage or whether it's in unexpected bills or whatever you might be facing and you say, I'm desperate. Really? How desperate? What would you do if you were really, and I mean really desperate? 
I love pop culture, and I don't know if you've remembered, just a few years, back, uh, years ago, there was a movie made by the, about a man by the name of Aaron Ralston. The movie was called 127 Hours. And this is the story of him. Had he went hiking and he went rock climbing and he fell and he got wedged. And for 127 hours he was there in his ordeal. And the bottom line is he amputated his own arm to escape his ordeal. It's a fascinating movie. He wrote a book, in fact, and this is where I got my title. The name of his book is aptly titled Between a Rock and a Hard Place. What would you do in a desperate situation? Have you ever been in one? The world that you all live in, in this 21st century, and the people and the nations that make up this world react so differently to desperation, don't they? From drugs to alcohol, from suicide to pleasure-seeking. Some will seek power, others look to people. Some will look up and idolize and want to be like movie stars. Some, even like on a Sunday afternoon like today, as you get into the evening of the Super Bowl, want to be like athletes. Some put all their hope and trust in politicians or reformers. If you're sick, you turn to doctors and specialists. Or some of you might seek fitness gurus and others, as I said earlier, life gurus. Some of you maybe have shelves filled with self-help books, chicken soup for this or that. Some look to religion. But what do you do when all of that fails? And let me tell you, youngest to the oldest, it will. Who or where will you turn when you are truly desperate? You see, Matthew wants us to see this, that Jesus Christ is the only one to turn to for our most desperate need. And with that in mind, go to Matthew chapter 9 and look at verse 18, and you will encounter two desperate yet very different people, a man and a woman. They come from different worlds. They have dealt and are confronted with different things. But listen as what the Matthew, the tax collector, tells us about these events. And he had a front row seat to this because this also happened probably close to Capernaum. While he was saying that Jesus is while he was saying these things to them, and believe it or not, now this is on the heels of the healing of the paralytic, the paralyzed man, remember that had those four friends that cut a hole in the roof and lowered him down? This is on the heels of this. And while he was saying these things to them, behold, Matthew's favorite word, pay attention, look at this, a ruler. If you have a Bible and you underline, underline that. This wasn't just a a nobody, this was a somebody. A ruler came in and knelt before him, Jesus, saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him and his disciples. Now, This is a miracle within a miracle. Verse 20, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge or an issue of blood, notice this, for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And here's why she did it. Verse 21 tells us, for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. Then Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, oh, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
And again, if you write in your Bible, underline or highlight that word well. It's a significant word. Notice what Matthew tells us. And instantly, the woman was made well. Now, it's like we come out of that and we go back to the original story in verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and they saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. For the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all of that district. That means all of Judea. See, Matthew writes his gospel. It's really a first century biography of the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. He's recording his life, his words, and his actions. And he does so for a reason. He does so 2,000 plus years now for you for a reason. Because he wants you to believe in Jesus Christ and who we claim to be. And I mean really who you believe Jesus to be. Because when you, what you believe about Jesus determines your life. I did a marriage conference a couple of weeks ago with Debbie and I told the people over and over again, I'm more convinced of this, tell me your view of God and I will tell you the state of your marriage. Tell me your view of God and I will tell you the state of your relationship with somebody. Tell me your view of God, and I will tell you how you view your job, your world, all the things around you. Tell me your view of God, and it determines so much. And by the way, don't forget, Matthew was writing this to Christians, to you and I, people like us. He's writing to encourage us and inform us and teach us and challenge us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one and only God in the flesh. And I know that you're prone to go, "Mm mm-hmm, thank you, Captain Obvious. Yeah, really? Do you believe this? Because if you believe this, it'll affect what happens to you tomorrow morning. You see, everything about Jesus, his lineage, his announcement, his birth, his childhood, his baptism, how he spoke, how he acted, all of it is recorded and laid out for us to prove and declare something, that Jesus is God, that you can trust him, that you can go to him. It's every song we sang. We just finished. He can do the impossible. But if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you don't believe that he can do whatever is desperate in your life. Or you may say it with your mouth, But you're not living it out in your life. And friends, without Jesus, the Bible also tells us what the alternative is. And some of you have experienced this. Some of you may be secretly living this now. The fear of what it means to live without Jesus means we're condemned. We're isolated. Totally hopeless. Desperate. But with Jesus... We're cleansed, forgiven, brought near. You're given a hope. You can have peace in the midst of the storm. And I promise you this, the world won't understand it because it lasts for eternity. In this passage I've just read in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, you saw that there was a miracle within a miracle. In fact, if you read Matthew chapter 8 and 9 and 10, in chapter 8 and 9, you have basically three sets of three sets of miracles. So in chapters 1 to 4, Jesus, Matthew lays out his gospel to say, look at how Jesus is authoritatively announced. 
from dreams and angels and all of these types of things to God himself in chapter 4 saying, this is my beloved son. Then in chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have that wonderful Sermon on the Mount where Jesus authoritatively speaks. Now, I want you to remember that for the end of my sermon. Then in Matthew chapter 8, 9, and 10, Matthew says, watch how Jesus authoritatively acts. And this is what he does. Jesus will raise a young girl from the dead and yet, during that, restore health to a woman who was considered by society as all but dead. It's interesting, I don't know if you know this person, but Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy one time said this, when I looked at religion, I said I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? And two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death as well? And he said in his diary, I checked the tomb of Buddha and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. And I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. So he said, there is one who has conquered death. And so I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to conquer death as well? And I opened the Bible, and I discovered that he said these words, because I live, you shall live also. And so listen, in the middle of a snowstorm right now, as we've gone through an epic winter already, and there's still, unfortunately, two months left, minimum, the supreme two-part question that faces every one of you in this room, all of you young people that maybe were born into Christian families, but every one of you are going to wrestle with these same questions. Is Jesus real? Did he conquer death? And can I conquer it? And so let me break down this passage into a couple of points. Number one for you this morning, we see in Matthew 9, we have two desperate people, but one accessible Jesus. We have two desperate people and one accessible Jesus. I've told you this already, right? Matthew says, while he was saying these things, there's a crowd already there. The crowd was so thick and dense that the paralyzed man had had to have four friends cut a hole in a roof and lower him down into the midst of it. Controversy's already been started. The whole town of Capernaum is pressing in. And then Matthew says, while all that's happening, behold, there's all kinds of other things happening. And so the backdrop of these miracles is exactly what I told you. And so think about this practically. Don't allow your Bible to be all sterile and without emotion. Jesus is busy. Jesus is in demand. Jesus is wanted by everyone. People either want to question him or ask him for help. They challenge him or they need him. And so Matthew is about to introduce us to two very different people. I submit desperate people. The one, this ruler, is rich and powerful and influential, and yet having experienced great loss, risks everything if he can just get his daughter back. The other, this woman, this unnamed, faceless woman, is an outcast. She's likely, in fact, Mark and Luke let us know she's poor now. On top of that, she's a woman in a first century world with no hope and no one to turn to. 
and yet find yourself with the same level of desperation. And amazingly, in the midst of all this chaos and press and time, Jesus has the time. Jesus takes the time. Jesus is both accessible and approachable. By the way, I think it's somewhere in like a book that I'm preaching through that he's the great shepherd. I think I've read that in a book somewhere in the Bible. I want you to see this, no matter where you're at this morning, no matter how desperate your situation is, no matter, you know one of the frustrating things I get as a pastor? You guys have been so wonderful, you know, when you ask me about my day or my week or my life and I tell you about things, and so often, one of the greatest things that frustrates me is when someone is hurting and someone's going through something and I find out about it and then I go to them and I either confront them or I talk to them or I, I ask them about it and they look at me and they say, well, I know how busy you are and I didn't want to burden you. You know that you are never going to go to Jesus And he's going to say, I'm too busy. I'm too burdened. Too many other people need my time. He is accessible, especially when you're desperate. Especially when you think everybody else around you seems better or better equipped or knows how to get to him more. And you seem, do you ever have your Zacchaeus moment when you just feel small? and insignificant, and all you can do is climb a tree and hope you get a glance. Remember, it was to that tree that Jesus came and said, Zacchaeus, come down from there, for today salvation has visited your home. See, kids, listen to me, young people. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. It's not just a Sunday school song. It happened. It's a reality. Jesus is acceptable and accessible and approachable. And again, if you read Matthew's account of this, or you read it in Mark chapter 5 or Luke chapter 9, Matthew was always the smaller one. In Mark, we learn that this man, this ruler, he has a name. His name is Jarius. He was the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. I've been there. I've been in the synagogue of Capernaum. I've sat on those same limestones. I was there where Jarius was there. I was in there. I've seen Peter's house, the foundations of what's left of it. I've seen the carvings. I know what this looks like. He was not only a synagogue official, he's the chief official. He's the guy that runs the synagogue. He's the highest ranking a religious official in Capernaum. He's responsible for all of the administration. He controls who speaks and who doesn't. He does it all. And stop and think about what our passage says. That man is the one who goes with all of his power and wealth and influence. And he's been to doctors and specialists. And who knows how long his daughter was sick and what he did. And none of it's working. None of it worked. His power, his money, his position, his influence, his friends. None of it could save his daughter. He simply comes in Matthew and says, my daughter has died. Can you identify with this man? He's exhausted all of his options. The emotions of his head and his heart. His religion as he had known it had failed him. You don't think he didn't pray in that synagogue and said, Lord, why? I have been a good Jew. Why take my daughter? 
But notice what else he says. It says in our passage, look at it in verse 18. He came and knelt before him saying, my daughter has died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. In Mark and Luke, we find out that he addressed Jesus as Lord. Now remember back in that house, the Pharisees had challenged him because he had said, your sins be forgiven you. And then he said, what's harder to say, your sins be forgiven you or take up your bread and walk. And so that you'll know that I am God, I say to you, take up your bread and walk. And he silenced his religious critics. Now on the heels of that, this guy comes who they would have all known. This is how desperate he is. He's going to come in now. And every one of his peers were standing there in judgment of Jesus. He comes and prostrates himself before him and says, help me. I'm desperate. Save my daughter. You see, remember that Capernaum was the home base of Jesus. This religious man could not have helped but known that he called Matthew the tax collector. That he had healed already Peter's mother-in-law. That he had done all these things. He probably ran into Jesus or saw him. They probably did what you and I do when we walk downtown or go for walks in our neighborhoods and people walk by and we nod our head at each other. Knowing of each other, but not knowing each other. Reputation preceded him. Maybe he'd been at the coffee shop or the local Tim Hortons or Starbucks, and they had talked about what Jesus had done. This man was known. And in the midst of this, likely everyone there who saw him come and do this, the leader of the synagogue, and maybe his desperation would cost him his job. Maybe his desperation would at the very least cost him the respect of his fellow scribes and Pharisees. But he was desperate. And now, as Jesus and his disciples are following the leader to his home in Capernaum, Matthew does another one of these, behold, look at verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered with a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. So you've got a miracle within a miracle. You've got to understand just how desperate this woman is. And again, if you get a chance, read about it in Mark and Luke. Because not only did she suffer from this blood disease, this blood disease was basically as bad for her as having leprosy in her world. She was quite literally cut off from society, from family, and most importantly, from her faith. Mark tells us this, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years who had suffered much, notice this, under many physicians... And she had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Sorry for those of you that are doctors. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. So look, she's unclean. She's in pain. She's suffering. She's isolated. She's lost all of her financial means. Religion has abandoned her. The world that she loved has offered her nothing. Medically, she's been failed. Religiously, she's been turned away. There's the stigma, the humiliation, all of this. And yet, God has time for her, is accessible to her. I'm not going to bother you now, but the stigma and humiliation of this hemorrhage of blood, if you were read about prescriptions in the Jewish Talmud, they were so superstitious. It's hilarious. One said that if you suffered from what this woman suffered from, carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and a cotton bag in the winter, and that'll make you better. 
And if you think that's weird, another involved carrying a barley corn kernel that had been found in the dung of a white female donkey. Like, that's just bizarre. Like that, you know, that's like, okay, when, when all of natural medicine didn't help, then she started turning to unnatural medicine. So here we are, Jarius, the wealthy, influential ruler who had everything to lose socially, religiously, positionally, was desperate enough for the love of a daughter to give it all up to Jesus if he could have his daughter back. And then you have a faceless, nameless woman who had already lost everything, was already basically the outcast, bleeding to death, risks the anger of the crowd. Her presence would have been an offense to the crowd. She's unclean. And she risked the possible rejection of Jesus. But Jesus has time for them both. And I want you to remember this, because secondly, look at our passage again. You have two forms of faith but one object of faith. Two forms of faith, but one object of faith. Very different people, very different reasons, driven by very different things, but they come to the same person. You see, Jarius and the woman show us one amazing faith displayed in two very different kind of ways. Jarius believed if Jesus touched his daughter, she'd be well. The woman believed if she touched, her, touched Jesus, she'd be well. Again, Luke and Mark tell us this. While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. So get this. Now, Matthew doesn't help us with this. When Jairus goes originally, his daughter is still alive. He thinks, this is my Hail Mary. This is my latch dist effort to go to Jesus. But Mark and Luke tell us, no, while he was going, they followed after him and said, she's dead. She's gone. It's too late. The unknown woman, for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. How do you have that kind of faith when you've spent all your money You've gone to all the doctors, and all they've done is made you worse, not better. What do you do? How do you muster up the courage if it's not because you know, if I don't do nothing, I'm going to die? I've wondered many times, why do Jarius and this woman do what they do? See, the woman thought, I just want to touch the hem of his garment. And she's been dealing with this for 12 years. I've walked through some trials in my life. I've had some desperate times. I've never honestly think that I can say I've gone through something for 12 years. But I know some of you have. Some of you have been unwell, dealing with chronic pain or illness or having to manage a disease. For some of you, maybe it's going through infertility. Some of you have walked through marital loss. Some of you have battled mental illness like depression or anxiety. Some of you have had a crisis of faith. Some of you have been through the ups and downs of good church and bad church. Some of you have been hurt. Some of you are praying for a child or for a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a neighbor or whatever it is. And just like this woman, can you identify her? 12 years she suffered. Jarius had watched his daughter have the life leave her. The two things that one pastor has said that bring men and women to Jesus are this. Deep felt personal need and a genuine faith. 
And Jairus and the woman with the hemorrhage had both. Now listen to me. It wasn't the amount of their faith that got them Jesus' attention. It wasn't the power of their faith that got them this. It was the object of their faith that made them whole physically and spiritually. And that was Jesus. Two different forms of faith. One great object of faith. You see, how did faith make one whole and the other live? How did faith give a dad his daughter back and a woman her life restored? Because in each case, their faith was totally and only focused on Jesus Christ. And you might say, Steve, you don't understand how small or fragile my faith is. Yes, I do, and it doesn't matter. It's where is it focused? You don't have to be the strong one. Jesus is for you. Young people, you don't have to have all the answers with your friends. You don't have to put it all together. It's do you trust Jesus enough to say, I will follow him, I will learn of him, and it will make sense to me more. Listen, mom, dad, parent, man, woman, it doesn't matter what your struggle is, what you're ashamed of, what you have done. It's where are you looking with all of your junk? This man and this woman believed that only Jesus could help them. And notice the constant is he responds. Why? Because when anyone, weak as they are, look to Jesus, that gives God glory. When anyone turns to Jesus, it proves that Jesus is who he says, God in the flesh, the Messiah. Oh, and by the way, He doesn't just heal them. He cleanses them of their sin. Don't miss that. Look at this passage again in John and Matthew 9. And seeing her, he said to her, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman instantly was made well. Now, you can automatically assume that her hemorrhage of blood dried up, and that is true. But the word that Jesus uses, well, is significant. Because it's the same word used everywhere else in the gospel. It's the Greek word sozo, where we get our word for saved. This is what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John want us to know. Jesus is saying, I will heal you physically, but you're saved now. Because remember, all the way back at the beginning of this chapter, when the man who was paralyzed is let down through the hole, and he says, your sins are forgiven you. And this was the argument. How can he... Forgive sin. And so it's like Jesus is doing it over and over and over again. And you'll either love that or be offended by it. Because that's what happens to the crowd. It wasn't the amount of faith that got them Jesus' attention. Don't miss this. You see, what I love about Jesus, everywhere else in Judaism, if you were unclean, if I was unclean and I touch you, you're unclean. But in Jesus, the unclean touch him and they become clean and he doesn't become unclean. You got to realize this. That's why the Bible says cast all your care upon him. That's why you go and you confess your sin. That's why we have a confession in our service. Because you can dump all your junk, your fears, your doubts, your shame, your guilt, your struggles. You can put it all on Jesus. He'll never become sullied by it. And he'll clean you up by it. That's what should motivate you. In Luke, we see this, Jesus, upon hearing this, answered him. In Luke's gospel, he says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And that's that Greek word again, sozo. 
Jesus' response was not to this man or this woman's self-contrived faith. He's responding because they believe only he can help. That's how desperate they are. I can tell you this resonates with me because this is how I got saved. My parents got saved when I was five. You all know this. I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a Christian school. I went to a Christian youth group. I I went out with a Christian woman. I had it all, but I did not know Christ. This is why I'm passionate, young people, for you to know and listen to me. And I remember in 1993 in June, while everyone thought I was a Christian, I knew inside of me I wasn't. And I remember that night on a Saturday night, I went in on my bed and I wrestled with God. And I remember saying this, I have nothing to say and I have nothing to offer. I don't want to play this game anymore. I'm tired of this religious stuff. All I have is I know I'm empty and I'm tired and I'm frustrated And I don't want to live in the shadow of my parents' faith. And I don't want to live in the shadow of my church's religion. And I don't want to live in the the shadow of the legalism of my Christian school and my youth group. I'm tired of it all. But everything I've tried fails. So Lord, here I am. I'm just going to look to you. And I can tell you that my life from June of 1993 to me here in front of you right now, has never been the same. And it wasn't because I was a rock star. It was because the first time in my life I admitted, I'm desperate. And only Jesus can fix me. Because I tried for 21 years to fix myself. And so finally, look at verse 22. Two types of touch, but one powerful Jesus. The lady touches him, and Jesus turned in verse 22, seeing her, and said, Take heart, daughter. Do you need anything else? This unclean woman just touches him, and he turns and says, Take heart, daughter. That's relationship words. That's not, hello, you're jacked up and messed up. Let's have a conversation about all your junk. That's not, I'm available on Mondays at 12, Hopefully, I can fit you in. This is an accessible, willing, approachable Jesus going, at the slightest indication that you admit you need me, you're mine. (laughs) You're mine. Notice the words, take heart. See, then notice the rest of the passage. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and the flute players in the crowd, they've already started a funeral you got to understand first century Judaism, when someone dies, they literally paid professional mourners. Because this guy had money and influence, they probably had the entire choir of the synagogue ready. They had converged on his place. Jairus' daughter is dead. They're ready to bury her. They're getting ready for all of this. And Jesus comes and says, no, 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 she's sleeping. And by the way, they knew he was an idiot in saying this in their opinion because they laughed at him. But he still puts them all out of the house. And I love this. He just takes her by the hand. Notice, touch. One woman touched the hem of his garment. The other young girl, Jesus touches. And by the way, one woman had suffered for 12 years. This woman, this little girl is 12 years old. Don't miss all of this. He touches them both. One is unclean with blood. The other is unclean with death. The first one is bleeding to death. The other one had already basically bled to death. 
And yet over and over again, Jesus comes into contact with uncleanness and he restores and he heals and he makes new. And for the first time, Jesus comes into contact with death and he overcomes death. Simply by taking her by the hand, life comes back into her. Is it any wonder, I wonder if this passage was on the mind of the person who wrote that song, he touched me, oh, he touched me. I wonder if that's what came into his mind over and over again. Why? Because Jesus has the power, not religion, not superstition, not doctors, not your family, not position, not money, not power, not your intelligence, not your academia, the power for the greatest need we all have, sin by the way, is only an ever found healing in Jesus Christ. One lady touched the hem of his garment. The other one is dead, decomposing, rotting, smelling, had suffered, and God touches her and she instantly comes back to life. My question is this, do you see him? Will you trust him? Will you reach out to him? Will you pray to him? Will you call out to him? Here's my words to any of you that are struggling right now. The only way you are hopeless if you refuse to cry out to the only one who can help you. That's the tragedy. So many, and I'll get to that in a minute. Jesus will make you clean. He'll make you alive. He'll make you right with God. He declares you to be righteous, holy adopted. Take heart, daughter. You're instantly in a relationship with him. You see, impure motives and imperfect people don't stop Jesus from saving if those people simply trust in him. In their book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, Paul Brand and Philip Yancey quote this particular novelist. His name is Frederick Buckner, and he wrote this. Who could have predicted that God would choose? Not Esau the honest and reliable one of the two sons of Jacob, or sorry, of, of Isaac, but, Ab- but Jacob, the trickster, and the guy who was always defrauding his family. They would he put it, that he would put his finger on Noah, who hit the bottle, or on Moses, who was trying to beat the rap in Midian for murdering a man in Egypt. And he'd soon let Aaron, his brother, go back and face the music What about all the prophets of the Old Testament who are a ragtag lot, mad as hatters, most of them? They go on, they say, the exception seems to be the rule. Adam and Eve, the first humans God created, went out and did the only thing God asked them not to do. And the man he chose to head the nation known as God's people, Abraham, tried to pawn off his wife on an unsuspecting Pharaoh. And the wife herself, Sarah, when told at the ripe old age of 91 that God was ready to deliver the son he had promised, broke into a rasping laughter in the face of God. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, seemed to go out of his way to break every proverb he ever wrote. Even after Jesus came, the pattern continued. The two disciples who did the most to spread the word after his departure, John and Peter, were the two that Jesus had to rebuke most because they squabbled and they were stubborn. Even the Apostle Paul, who wrote books of the Bible more than any other writer, was selected for the task while kicking up dust from town to town, sniffing out Christians to torture. You see, Jesus had nerve, they write, entrusting the high-minded ideals of love and unity and fellowship to this group. It's no wonder cynics have looked at the church and sighed. If that group of people is supposed to represent God, then I'll quickly vote against Jesus. 
Even Frederick Nietzsche once wrote, his disciples will have to look more saved if I'm to believe in their Savior. But listen to me. How wonderful that God is more gracious than men. See, God never excuses disobedience. God never excuses unfaithfulness or any other sin, but he will forgive every sin that is placed under the atoning death of his son, Jesus Christ. And my only caution to you is this. The greatest tragedy of your Bible, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, is how many thousands of men and women came into contact with Jesus, but left not touched by Jesus. Jarius was touched by Jesus. This unnamed woman touched Jesus, but was touched by him. And that is why Muhammad Gandhi, whom I talked about at the beginning, comes to the end of his life, having said that he loved the Sermon on the Mount. It was his third favorite source of material outside of the sacred writings of Hinduism. Comes to the end of his life and says, I'm in the slew of despond. Jesus knows the difference between persons who approach him out of mere religious curiosity and those who come to him desperate. My last question to you is this. Are you desperate enough to come to Jesus today? Listen, friends. What you take from this passage is this. Sin contaminates us all. If you're here this morning, and I love you, some of you young people, you've been born, you've been blessed to be born into Christian homes, and your story is not one of anything kind of illicit. You've just been good kids, you've been raised in good homes and done good things, and you need to know you need Jesus as much as whoever is in this room who you think is the motliest of sinners. We all need him because our sin contaminates us all. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are born sinners. That's what Psalm 6 tells us in Psalm 14. Psalm 51, David said that he was in sin. His mother conceived him. That's why Paul said in Romans, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So sin contaminates us all. Secondly, sin isolates us all. This is my burden for our church. I don't think you realize it. I don't have to be God to know when you struggle with sin because people who are struggling with sin who won't deal with their sin end up turtling up. You hide. It's as common and as old as the Garden of Eden. Sin isolates you. It keeps you from God. And worst, think about sin. It'll isolate you from other people. It creates hurt and hard feelings and misunderstandings. It's done so from races and individuals and members and marriages and families. Isaiah said, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he cannot hear you. And sin is beyond your ability to fix Nothing could be more helpless than death. And we're described as being dead in our trespasses in sin. Jairus couldn't raise his daughter from the dead. This woman knew she couldn't stop herself from dying. And how tragic if this is where I ended. But I want you to know the promise. You see, Jesus became sin for us. 
For our sake, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Are you desperate enough to go and say, I can't, I can't fix myself. I'm exhausted from trying. Thomas Wilcock, that old Puritan said, the more you look at Christ, the son of righteousness, the stronger and clearer will be the eyes of faith. Look but to Christ and you will love him and live on him. Think on him continually. Jesus invites us to him never to be alone again. Sin will isolate you. Jesus invites you. And then finally, Jesus paid for your sin, bore the punishment for your sin, and makes us right before God. This is the message. This is the message. When D.L. Moody was a young pastor, he was called upon to preach a funeral sermon. So we began to search the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John, to find one of Jesus' funeral messages that he could maybe pattern his message off after, only to discover that Jesus never preached a funeral message. He found instead that Jesus broke up every funeral he ever attended by raising them from the dead. Did you ever think about that? He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. So is Jesus Christ really the object of your faith? In the midst of this storm, in the midst of whatever storms you're going through, stop pretending. Stop trying. Stop and be desperate enough to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his love and grace. Let's pray. Father God, again, I beg of you that my friends and my family, Lord, these are the people I love the most and I could never love them if I tried with all of my might the way you love them. Lord, I pray for men and women, young and old here, that they would stop pretending and turn to you. Father, on a stormy day when our numbers are a little down and it's kind of the home crowd, Lord, I pray that these ones will know you can't hide from Jesus. You can't pretend. Oh, God, if there's someone here and they need prayer, Lord, if there's someone who's willing to be desperate enough just to reach out and say, oh, God, touch me, heal me, save me, change me. If there's some young person here who's tired of just smiling and doing what they're told and they want to know the reality of a real relationship with you, give them the courage to seek that and believe that you will touch them. And Father, for all of us, me included, help me to believe. Lord, I believe in you, but help my own belief. Help me to be convinced that my faith, it's not about my strength or my size. It's about I focus it all on you. And may you get the glory in Jesus' name.